Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. Good morning. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. We are live streaming on Jolt Radio from Miami, Florida. Welcome to our show. Fresh Art International is a radio show and a podcast that you can listen to anytime you'd like, anywhere you go for podcasts. We spark conversations about contemporary art, design, and film with culture makers from around the world. The key word today is future. We've talked about the future in other Fresh Art International episodes, how we make art, for instance, Studio Drift, directing drones to fly around like flocks of starlings on Miami Beach, Orlan, an artist from France, inserting her animated avatar into her photos. The black futurist artists have been visualizing a radical future for a while, and the black radical imagination filmmakers brought films to Miami Beach Cinematheque last year. With previous guests, we've talked about the future of how the world will look not too far off in a show called Intertidal, a current exhibition at the Art Center South Florida that considers an underwater future for Miami. And we've even talked about the future of how you experience art in museums like Vizcaya's virtual reality experiences and how you buy art with different apps using currency like Bitcoin. So many things about the future are making us feel uncertain for many reasons. And it's not only that uncertainty about where technology is taking us, but the national and political scene, politics, climate change, and other threats to the environment, and the sinister use of technology. Today, I have in the studio with me someone who is excited to talk to me about the uncertainty of our future. Welcome, Laura Randall. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be here. And I'm excited about the future. Are you? Good. Well, considering some of the art we're going to be talking about, we may wonder why you're feeling excited. <laughs> the big question today that we're going to be talking about is, are we the last generation of real humans? Right, Laura? Right. Or are we still human? Are we still human even now? What is our future? Will humans exist for another hundred years or billions of years? We're going to talk about whether or not we'll be just replaced by technology or whether we'll fade into stardust <laughs> as predicted hundreds of years ago. So we are going to contemplate our uncertain future through art that engages and speculative science, thinking about what comes next based on the history of the cosmos, lived experience, the technology of today, and just how we feel okay. about all this. Right, Laura? Okay. <laughs> and there's a lot of artists tackling these topics. There are. And I think we'll just describe right away here the exhibition that brings us to the studio today to talk about sure. real humans. Sure. Let's just tell them it's it's a show called Still Human. Still Human, that's right. And it opened in December of 2017. 
So Still Human is at the Rubel Family Collection, and it's a group show of a number of artists who are working with the effects of the digital age on the body, what it means for our labor, what it means for our future, our humanity. And they're tackling these in unique ways. Every artist has a different way of explaining that future or what it might look like. And you're right. Should we be excited about it? It depends on the artist. Some of them present a very bleak look at the future. I find it very exciting. We're going to talk a lot more about where the show is being seen, but I think I'll give a proper introduction to Laura. She is the collection archivist and registrar, but she's also known around the place where she works (laughs) as the scholar in residence. That's right. How did you get that title, That's funny. So I had learned a lot about the collection and the artists when I came into the Rubel Collection It was five years ago, and I had learned all about the artist. And when I met Mira, I went on about how much I loved all these artists and the work. And she said, well, you're more like a scholar. So she started introducing me as the scholar in residence. Now I've been a resident for five years. I have no publications yet on this, but but I'll take the title. Well, you do a lot of work preparing for the exhibitions and also just the fact you know so much about each piece in the collection. It's exciting. That's what I enjoy doing is learning about these artists. So the minute we have, you know, a new show coming up or a new artwork or acquisition, the first thing I do is try to learn about that artist. And just to give a little background about Laura, that she has a master's in art history from the University of Florida, and she contributes to the Miami Rail, as do I sometimes. Laura is a recent Night Arts Challenge Grant awardee. Thank you. And you as well. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And Laura is organizing, I'm calling it a drive-by a, biennial. The commuter biennial, which will be launched next year, it activates other places in Miami, greater Miami-Dade. So the suburban realms where we all, many of us live, and usually site-specific projects that engage that neighborhood, whether it's Doral, Palmetto Bay, these places that they don't have public art. They're definitely on the fringe when you right. think about Miami where being an contemporary art, art is happening. Right. Yeah, so we have to keep that in mind. But I'm looking forward to inviting Laura back again yeah. when she gets this project Thank ready you. to launch. I want to introduce the Rubel Family Collection now. I think it's really important because that's the context for this show. Established in 1964 in New York City by mm-hmm. Mara and Don Rubel, one of the largest privately owned and publicly accessible contemporary art collections. Mm -hmm. Tell me about this collection. Well, it's massive. I happen to think it's a very important collection, and I know I'm biased, but I I truly believe that it's one of the most important collections of contemporary art. And what's really important about that collection is it's always showing new and engaging work that's dealing with where we are today. And that's a hard thing to do as a curator or as a collector or a, an art critic, right? To gauge the currents and the flows of the water and, and figure out where art lies today. And so I'm always fascinated by the artists that they bring in, not just historically, because those were important at that time, Gilbert and George, Gregory Crudson. Those artists are important still, but just looking at today's artists. So the artist and still human, Ed Adkins, very, you know, he's, gained a lot of popularity. He currently has a work up at the Hirshhorn. There's also John Raffman, 
who has a lot of upcoming exhibitions, Frances Stark. It just amazes me that Don and Mira are still pulling in these amazing works that you wouldn't see in other collections or other museums. They really have a gift. They have their antenna up for exactly. what is not just trending, but significant I would call it groundbreaking Very groundbreaking. artists that are trying things that no one's tried before. Right. They have a space right now that's in Wynwood, mm-hmm. a 45,000 square foot repurposed drug enforcement agency confiscated goods facility. That's right. <laughs> that's uh, Miami's history for you. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. And so they created a foundation in 94. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Well, they opened the Contemporary Arts Foundation, the Rubel Collection, in Miami because, one, Miami had a lot of space at the time, and two, it's an international city where people from Latin America have access, people from Europe have access, and it's new. When you think about where modernism really came from, you know, Los Angeles, Miami, it exemplifies the new, and so it was the perfect place for contemporary art to settle and live and have good viewer engagement so people could come and see this artwork's no longer just in their apartment in New York or in storage or on loans. It's a way to come and see the whole collection and that can tell a lot about history, right? The history of the collection itself. And how many works are in the collection right now? Do you know? I mean, you're the registrar, you should know. I do, (laughs) Um, just over 7,000. So (laughs) quite a bit. a, A good number. And the collection is constantly expanding, obviously. Mm -hmm. What's the most recent acquisition, or can you talk about it? I can tell you about the works in Still Human, which are fairly recent. Okay, we'll talk about that (laughs) when we get into the exhibition. But as Laura says, there are a lot of super well-known artists in the collection. Jean-Michel Basquiat, whose recent documentary we featured right. on this show, Keith Haring, Jeff Koons, Yayo Kusama, who's been having this stunning success with her traveling show. I wish it would come here. <laughs> Cindy Sherman and Kara Walker, who has a project uh, in Prospect New Orleans coming up. And we just talked about Prospect New Orleans in our last show here on Fresh Art International. So how does the team over there at the Rubel Family Collection, how do they organize exhibitions? How Good do they question. figure out what they're going to do with this 7,000-piece collection? I think that organizing the collections works in the same way that the acquisitions work, right? So it's figuring out where we're at and why is it time to have Still Human Now? Or three years ago, why was it the right time to present 28 Chinese artists? You have to think about where we're at. So there's a lot of shows right now happening about activism, but for us, we're interested in still human and how technology is changing us, right? So it's been 25 years since Jeffrey Deitch put on Post Human, which was an important exhibition. And so this is a response 25 years later, and the stakes have changed just because of the rate of technological advancement has changed so rapidly. Were there any new acquisitions needed in order to explore this topic? Well, I think that there's certain artists needed when you're exploring this topic, Ed Adkins being one of them, Francis Stark, John Raffman. These artists are very engaged in this, and it's no coincidence that they're also being shown at different museums right now that are dealing with art and technology. I guess what I'm asking is, were these new pieces acquired for this show, or were they already part of the, uh, they were part of a thinking process that 
took place over time? Good question. So they're they're part of a thinking process where we know we want to do a technology show. What artists do we need? And that happens at the same time that they're acquiring. You know, they could acquire that and say, well, what do we do with this? And then in two years, you think, oh, that was the right move. That that was a good idea. We should show this. I'm thinking my own parallel is that I have this obsession with recording conversations about creativity, uh, recording wherever I go. Mm -hmm. And I don't always know exactly where this conversation will fit in to a bigger picture of what I feel it's something important to record and talk about. Right. And today on the show, you'll be hearing two of uh, those people who with whom I recorded who fit perfectly into our conversation today, Andrew Yang and Joey Orr. Joey Orr, a curator, Andy Yang or Andrew Yang, an artist. Mm-hmm. And we'll be hearing about them. But I love that organic process and, and feeling that you know these are important. Exactly. These are important conversations. This is important art to take care of. And right? I think, exactly. And I think that organic process is, helps make a good show. Unlike, you know, museums have different sets of concerns and they have to plan exhibitions three years out. And we don't, we have the luxury of not having to do that. We, we don't have to hold ourselves accountable to having this ready by this time. So as long as the show is good and it feels right, that's what's important to us. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I love it. Let's talk about the historic precedents for Still Human. And you mentioned the Jeffrey Dyke project. That right. was 1992. Right. I just read an article uh, from 2016 with Spike Magazine. He was interviewed. This show that he curated called Post Human right. was shown in Switzerland, Italy, Greece, Germany, and Israel. It never came to the U.S. Groundbreaking show, too, with so many influential artists. Let's talk about who was in it. Some of the people that are in your, Robert your Gober. collection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Robert Gober. Matthew Barney. Paul McCarthy. Jeff Koons. Cindy Sherman. Damien Hurst. Yeah, it's a great Charles one. Charles Ray. Charles Ray, of course. Christian Marclay, of course. And we have Charles Ray's mannequin from 1990, I believe, in our show Still Human. Because those concerns are still there. When post-human was mounted, they were looking at the animal that was first cloned. I think it was a sheep. And they were looking at plastic surgery. Those concerns are still here. We're still de- dealing with them just a little differently. They were looking at the advent of the Internet, the artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And like you said, plastic surgery, all of that changing what it meant to be human and suggesting in the catalog essay that he wrote that maybe we're the last generation and that was 15 years ago. Right. And, and we're not. What's so interesting about that, you know, now we have Neuralink, right? Elon Musk's idea that we're going to bridge our brains with computers. We're there. And so the rate of advancement for technology within 25 years from post-human to now will be radically different in the next 25 years. So the span of what happened in those 25 years is now going to be as rapid as five years for us. And so is the artwork keeping up with that technology and how is it responding to those rapid advancements? Or does it need to? I think it it will inevi- inevitably respond to it, whether or not it's aware of it. True, true. Well, let's talk about another historic uh, exhibition, 2012. Joao Ribas was the curator. It was called In the Holocene at MIT List Center. This was one of the rare 
moments when an exhibition got the nod from the Tremaine Foundation for an exhibition award. They've only been doing those awards just for 20 years, and they're celebrating it now with a publication. And I was looking through the publication and saw this title of an article about this show, Art, Science, and Media for After Humanity. Wow. (laughs) So that one was using the term that I was using earlier today, which I love, speculative science. Right. Thinking about investigating ideas through science and mathematical thought and not just through art-making processes or through technology specifically. But using a form of inquiry that was including a consideration of the development of human civilization. So, again, artists that you'll recognize, Berenice Abbott, John Baldessari, Uta Bart, Joseph Boys, looking back that far, the artists were having that same inquiry about how we relate to the world and speculating what the future would hold. And Trevor Paglin was in that show, and he's the real connection. Great artist for that. Right. Perfect artist for that. He's the one that I just hooked into thinking, okay, this one makes a lot of sense. His piece was called The Clark Belt, a time-lapse photoprint of the night sky awash in white slashes of artificial satellites stuck in the orbit around the Earth after humans are no longer there. He's always on the cutting edge. I mean, he's looking at the algorithms that are used for facial recognition technology now and making artworks out of that technology and using those same algorithms to create new portraits. He's just always at the cutting edge, and his project's always developing with the times. And there's another show. It's a current show at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden called What Absence is Made of, and it pursues a lot of different topics about the rising appeal of immateriality by artists. And there's 70 works from 1960 until today. John Baldessari is in that show. Yes. Gianni Jetzer is the curator at large for this project. Five key themes, but the one that interested me, of course, there was the post-human body. And for that, they use... At Adkins. Yes, and you got to see it. I got to see it. That's a great piece. Tell us what it looked like. Well, it's unsettling. It's funny. It's gruesome. There's a lot of gruesome noises. And it's basically a look at going through security checkpoints and airports, right? But it's all done through computer animation. And it's a lot of the severed body. He's pulling off his face, he's cutting off his nose, cutting off his ears, and they're dumping eyeballs into those plastic bins that TSA gives you. And it really illustrates that experience, right? It's sort of what happens to our humanity as we go through this sort of conveyor belt. And the beginning of the video shows a sausage factory, and it's all set to uh, classical music, Raval. It's very good. And it's all him in the work. So... It's his face, and his face is deteriorating quickly as he pulls off his face. He was singing to himself. I watched a a video excerpt, and you can hear this sucking sound as he takes off his face, and there's another face under there. But as you said, it's slowly changing, dematerializing. Right. What a crazy piece. It's gruesome. It's very gruesome. And 
I was I was joking that I don't think that our representatives on Capitol Hill know what's happening. Like that that piece is in the Hirschman right on the, the National Street. Mall. <laughs> I don't think they've seen it. A critique of uh, airport right, security. Of airport security. <laughs> But it's funny because the music, so he normally narrates his pieces, and he's really interested in language. And for the piece we have in our show, Still Human, The Trick Brain, it's all set to his own script that he wrote. And it's sort of an homage to the Surrealist because that piece is about Andre Breton's apartment. And for this one, where it's Security Checkpoint, the one at the Hirschhorn, it's set to Reval, and it's actually a Spanish dance. It's a one movement, and he's, he's humming it. Right, so he's humming the bass line to the music instead of reading any of his scripts or lyricism. And it becomes like this dance when we go through the security checkpoint. He's so smart the way he narrates or the way he sets this music. In the same it's way, this whole choreography right, getting right. through, and he did that with this piece. Right, you had to pull out your laptop, take off your shoes, put your cell phone in this bin. It's almost like muscle memory at this point when you go through that checkpoint. Yeah. I do remember the day when we didn't have to go through that. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the 25 artists that are working in this show, besides Ed, which I love that we had a chance to draw on these other exhibitions to just contextualize this conversation. Before we talk about the artists we decided would be great examples, you had a quote from Yuval Harari, who wrote this book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, that inspired some of the thinking about the show. It did. Uh, Mir was very influenced by that book. And his second book, Homo Deus, was also influential. And he says, there's a quote from him, Homo sapiens, as we know them, will disappear in a century or so. Some say sooner. Yes. Let's describe for people what the first encounter they'll have when they come into the show, the work of John Raffman. Right. So that's a good point. With John Raffman's work, it's an installation with a video. And, and we say, like, that humans are going extinct, right? Like Harari contends. And so you walk into that show, and it's a narration with computer animation and these sofas. And the sofas are these fleshy foam. It looks as if a body has melted into the sofa. And it mimics the look on the screen. But really, his concerns are immortality. So... If we are to die off, we have this trace within the machine. And so the narrator says, you know, we can't die. We've tried. And so if you look at art history, there was always this vanitas, right? This or a memento mori, a remembrance that of our mortality. But now in art, it has shifted to our immortality. And what happens if we can't die? Which is funny because that piece is set to Blade Runner. So the music from Blade Runner, and if you recall the first Blade Runner, it's about these robots being, you know, having this life and dying. We're going to listen to a bit of the soundtrack, but I want to explain to people, they're going to hear some thudding sounds. Right. Let's tell them what that is if they were looking at it. There's sounds of people running, and there's thudding. Oh, so that's computer software that shows these massive people as if they're wiped out. So that's the noise of all these crowds getting hit. I mean, you recall like big catastrophes. Or falling off cliffs. Cliffs. Right. Right. So it kind of mimics catastrophes or bombing simulations that we have today, you know, that are in our collective consciousness, our awareness about these events. And so he's illustrating that. These moments when we have no control and it's like humanity is just being wiped away. Right. 
So let's hear what that sounds like. If you can't sleep at night, it means you're awake in someone else's dream. an idea, but I'm missing the words. Good morning. This is Kathy Bird 
You are listening to Fresh Art International live streaming on Jolt Radio in Miami, Florida. And today in the studio with me is Laura Randall, Scholar-in-Residence at Hello. the Revelk Family Collection. You just heard an excerpt of a soundtrack from the work of John Rathman, a Montreal-based artist, titled Poor Magic that can be experienced, shall we say, not just mm-hmm. on view. Mm-hmm. You just fall it's a into theater. This. Go into the theater of John Raffman's mind at the collection uh, within the exhibition Still Human. Dark piece. It sounds dark. It's, it's exactly how I feel when I spend too long on my phone. So let's talk about Josh Klein. More lighthearted New York-based artist who sees our future when uh, we're, the human bodies are definitely no longer needed in a workplace. Right. right. So when we are replaced by the machine... So his work used to focus on on the labor. So he looked at FedEx workers in the past and cleaning women. And now for this new series on employment, he's looking at people who are unemployed who probably have college degrees, right? So just because you go to college or you go to law school, that's no guarantee at this time that you can be employed or that you'll find a job. And so we have this grocery cart that's full of the silicon cast of everything that you would see in an office or here, a laptop, your iPhone, your pens, all of these office supplies. And they're all cast in different colors that kind of look like flesh tones. It looks like skin. Right. Mm. It looks like skin. One of his earlier projects in 2011, he did something similar with his friends. But in this case, he's looking at lawyers. He's looking at graphic designers. He's looking at a banker. And there's that one, it's a woman, right, a lawyer Joanne. in a bag. That's right. She's in a fetal position. And the title of the piece is Thank You for Your Years of Service. Right. <laughs> Funny titles, all the best. Kind regards. Yeah, it's a dark piece. What's interesting about that is there's this concern for whether or not we're going to be needed in the future, right? So there's software that can do, if you're a lawyer, you can just use the software to write your cases now. You know, we don't need as many. And now that technology can obliterate an entire labor force, what happens? Where's the labor? Why do we need that human? And with Joanne Lawyer, what's funny is that's also a sculpture, but it's 3D printed. So there was no physical laboring of your hands to make it either. That's sort of a factory piece that comes out of a printer. Speaking of another fabricated woman, Andrew Wakua. That's a beautiful work. That one's untitled, and that one is made with a hand. So Andrew Wakua is a sculptor, and he often makes works in ceramics and wax. So that work of this girl dangling, it's a very powerful piece. She's dangling above pink carpet. And she's suspended there. And in this case, he uses a computer. So she's ostensibly hooked into this PC. Her eyes are closed. And her hand has a slight twitch. And it's a really dark and brilliant twitch. So this movement, it's very restrained. It makes you believe that she is maybe powered down or plugged into another realm. So maybe it represents the transhuman moment where, where man is enhanced by technology. And then we have a more hopeful viewpoint from Cecile B. Evans. Oh, I thought that Wanderer Wakuas was hopeful. It is I would hopeful. love to be plugged into a PC all day. You would? <laughs> you know, some people find it really dark and upsetting that children are so glued to their iPads. Maybe it is just because we didn't experience it ourselves, but maybe it's not such a bad thing. Okay. (laughs) 
Neuralink. I'll take it. Neuralink. Okay. Good attitude. Cecile B. Evans' title is working on what the heart wants, and it's actually evidence of her preparing for a bigger installation project, which I love the fact that they collected sort of the behind the scenes for a major installation that she created for the ninth Berlin Biennial. So she represents her piece on three monitors, which are hooked up to Raspberry Pis, which are these at-home computers that you build yourself. And then it's connected to a server in London. So rather than having those videos on a loop, they're actually live fed. So if the artist wanted that, she could manipulate them. And then it's set to a table, you know, a basic IKEA table with a workstation and little like compact mirrors and things like that, train tickets, things like that. So it's an installation. And it has an avatar. And she talks to a programmer on the right-hand panel about how she's going to make this avatar. But so if we exist within the machine and we're represented by these avatars, then what happens to human feeling? So that's what the title is alluding to, what the heart wants. Because there's no room for human feeling in machines, right? We can't anthropomorphize technology and think that it's going to have feelings like us. Well, let's listen to Cecile talk about her work. And thanks to Kunsthal Arhaus, a contemporary art center in Denmark, who gave us permission to use this bit of a video that they produced with her. We're going to hear her voice and her avatar's voice. Okay. And it's an uncanny experience, to be honest. It so is. here's Cecile. It was a future. This was a system. This is a new system. I'm hyper. And the system was me. So this was really a continuation of previous works that I'd done where I'd kind of created these worlds um, with these agents that were questioning their own condition. And it was also a way for me to question the human condition and the ways that we value it. You're extremely insensitive and your words are shallow given the depth of emotion and experience that the house holds for me. What do you think gives you the right to talk about memory in relation to this place. And because of the way that the world has progressed, these issues became amplified. And what the heart wants was really a way for me to take responsibility, to think about what's, what are the systems that are behind all of this? How are the systems that exist now failing? And what's the potential for a new system to come? And what, for better or worse, could that start to look like? What the Heart Wants is a video installation that was a way for me to take a look at the future of what it could mean to be human or even who gets to be a person. Can a mayonnaise have a spirit? Can a mayonnaise have a soul? Can a mayonnaise be alive? That was artist Cecile B. Evans offering a cosmic perspective on the future of humanity. There is another artist that looks to the stars for answers, and that's Chicago-based Andrew Yang. I talked to curator Joy Orr, who brought Andrew Yang's work to the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago in 2016. At the time, Joey was 
an Andrew Mellon postdoctoral curatorial fellow there. And now he's at the University of Kansas at the Spencer Museum of Art, where he's involved in the university's integrated arts research initiative. He's a writer, curator, and artist who explores the boundaries between research and creative production. I have to say, when I first reached out to him, he said, now, I must tell you, I really don't know about post-human. I'm into research. So we had a very interesting conversation. Here's Joey. Andrew's Chicago Works exhibition was on display concurrently with two other exhibitions that I was overseeing. One was a screening of Camille Lanreau's Grosse Fatigue, which she did as a result of her artist research fellowship with the Smithsonian Institution, and a mid-career retrospective by Diana Thader, who's not only researching sort of the boundaries of her media, but is also very much interested in how we encounter other species, not just from a human perspective. Andrew Yang's exhibition was in sort of a cluster at the MCA Chicago at that time. But he was specifically in that exhibit looking at the Milky Way galaxy. You can't see the Milky Way galaxy from most cities in the United States now. And so he was trying to make that somehow available experientially. Andrew has an MFA and also a PhD in biology. And so was trying to find ways to make the subject of his research alive and available to museum goers. When I spoke with him, he mentioned how much he enjoyed doing this exploration that was more artistic than his solid biology research because it allowed him to play. This particular project was sort of speculative in nature. Even though there was research behind it, he was speculating how to make it tangible. It's interesting about Andrew Yang because he operates across so many different media. You could talk about his practice as an installation practice. He also does video work. He does sculptural work. He did one piece. It was questions about the Milky Way in which he interviewed a physicist about the origins of the universe and then also interviewed his mother. I mean, as you say, he's being speculative instead of operating purely from a scientific perspective. And I just love the playfulness of that because actually scientists and moms are both completely legitimate cultural sources for our stories of origin. (laughs) Exactly. I think about the role of technology in his work. There's a whole series of visual images that are coming in and out of focus as you're watching the interviews. And I think there was only one, maybe two images that were appropriated. Everything else were images where he was just collecting video, mostly using his iPhone, as he's walking around the world and experiencing the evidence of systems that he's interested in. And so, you know, it wasn't that he was specifically interested in exploring the technology that he was using. It was that the technology was there and allowing him to take his direct observation and get it into the video work that he was producing. You and I exchanged a note about post-human not being something you're 
<laughs> versed in. But I think it's very interesting because the exhibition that I was referring to, that's one of the two exhibitions that I know of right now that explore what's next of when will we no longer be in a physical form on the earth. And Andrew has in his mind how our bodies are part of the galaxy. And so we are celestial bodies. And he gives us hundreds of billions of years to return to star stuff. <laughs> Whereas those artists in the other exhibition, they see that our bodies will become out of date, no longer useful, not too far off, not billions of years, certainly. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I was actually glad to see you reference the exhibition about the post-human and this whole idea about the fact that we're star matter. He had this one really beautiful piece in the exhibit and the title of the work is Stella's stoichiometry, all things being equal, six pounds, 13 ounces. Stoichiometry is sort of the math work you do to translate how chemicals are formed in one way and how they might be retranslated by a different recombination of materials in another. And essentially, he took the weight of his daughter at her birth, and we know scientifically, mathematically, 99% of what we are composed of. He was trying to find things he could buy at the local grocery store that would be almost the exact same composition as his daughter's material being at birth. And I talked to him quite a bit about the piece because in one way, you might look at it as sort of reducing his daughter to a mathematical equation. But Andrew's point is that we are all matter that comes from stars, all of us. And so he's able to talk about the galaxy and the universe at scales that are very difficult to imagine by way of making them intimate and close and personal. And, and I think that is really the magic of his work. Now let's hear from Andrew Yang. He identifies as a natural historian and he uses hybrid methods to understand the cosmos. As you heard Joey just describe it, this was his first solo museum exhibition. And in it, he contemplates our relationship with the Milky Way. Carl Sagan, are you listening? There's six components in the exhibition, but one of the rooms is completely taken up by a work called The Beach for Carl Sagan. And the Chicago Works project is also meant to be site-specific. This project is really inspired by Chicago and my experience living here. I've lived here for almost 12 years. And one thing that always struck me is that because of all of the city lights, it's very difficult to actually see the stars here. And it's impossible to see the Milky Way. By some estimates, Chicago is the most light polluted city in, in North America. And so on any given night, at best, I can maybe see five or six stars and, and a couple very bright planets. But otherwise, the cosmos is completely obscured and occluded from my view. And I, I feel really sad about that. I feel like 
it is a way to sort of make sense of where I am and who I am in this broader context, but that's gone. And in the process of shining so much light on the city and where we are, we physically and literally block out our access to the rest of the universe that we're in. And so the beach for Carl Sagan's named that way because Carl Sagan, in the, I think it's the first episode of Cosmos, his show, he's walking on the beach and he picks up some sand and he says that there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand in all the beaches and all the deserts on planet Earth. And as much as it sounds like poetic hyperbole, as far as scientists know, he's correct. In fact, there might be 10 times as many stars in the universe as there are grains of sand on our planet. Taking that to heart, I thought, what would it mean to then make some sculpture, make the Milky Way galaxy that otherwise we can't see available to somebody in the city of Chicago? And so I decided to make a one-to-one scale model of the Milky Way with sand, one grain of sand representing one star in our galaxy. How did you do that? Well, (laughs) it's a good question. So the estimates for the number of stars in our galaxy range from 100 billion to 400 billion. So 100 billion is the low estimate for the number of stars in our own galaxy. And so using that as a basis, I would count grains of sand. And I counted Andrew, many- wait. Not- Andrew, you counted uh-huh. grains of sand? Well, not 100 billion of them, because if I counted all 100 billion, it would take me over 3,000 years without (laughs) I did it 24 hours a day that's how long it would take you if you counted one grain of sand every one second it would take you 3,100 or more years to count them so I would count several thousand grains and then weigh them count several thousand grains and then weigh them of a specific kind of sand and on that basis once I knew what 10,000 grains of sand weighed I could estimate what 100 billion grains of sand must weigh And on that basis, we brought over seven tons of sand into the MCA gallery space. And I sculpted it into the form of these different dunes that are kind of evocative, I think, of the dunes on Lake Michigan. So it has a a very local and site-specific reference, uh, while also, I think, making very literal material sense as a scale model of our galaxy. So yeah, it ends up being about seven tons altogether. (laughs) And the way you described it is that the installation represents the Milky Way that you could see if you could see it. That's right. Even if we could see the Milky Way in those places that are really dark and on our planet where you can see it, you can't probably see distinctly all 100 billion, but you can see a lot. And so this is just another way to sort of like also present something that you couldn't see otherwise, but that you're trying to make some kind of conceptual sense of. A hundred billion just doesn't make any sense. We're not used to dealing with numbers or magnitudes that large. And so it's also trying to give one a way to visually make sense of something that is on a scale of the sublime, really. You added a sound element to this installation (laughs) that would potentially transport the viewer. That's right. And so when you enter the gallery, actually before you even get into the space, as you go up the stairs of the MCA, you hear this sort of rushing sound. And it's the sound of white noise coming from five radios that are hanging from the ceiling of the gallery over the dunes that are tuned to 
between stations. And so this white noise coming out floods the room and kind of floods your senses as you're engaging with and walking around the sand. It's white noise from a radio is a very everyday kind of thing. But it turns out that one to three percent supposedly of that white noise, that radio wave, is part of what's called the cosmic microwave background or a signal of the Big Bang, the creation of our universe from over 13.5 billion years ago. Radios turn out to be, and analog televisions turn out to be just crude telescopes that allow you to tune into a very small portion of the primordial signal of the creation of, of our whole universe. And so when you listen to that white noise or watch it on your old CRT television, you're actually engaging with part of the signal from the creation of our, our, of our own universe, the sound of its own making. That's there as a compliment. But one thing for me that was relevant was that that sound also ends up sounding a lot, at least to me, like the sea or the sound of the waves in the water crashing. You're there and you see dunes, these wave-like dunes, and you have the sound that sounds almost like the ocean, um, but it's in fact the sound of the universe at the same time. And that's the sound that I listened to a lot for the first year after my daughter was born. She was given this thing called a sleep sheep by a friend. It's a noise machine that lets you turn to different sounds and she and I would fall asleep off into the sound of the ocean. There's the rain, there are all these other settings on your sleep sheep. <laughs> my partner and I use the ocean wave sound to lull her and inadvertently us to sleep. And so that sound also has penetrated into my psyche on, in this other level that I think is evocative of this primordial sound of a heartbeat of the ocean and of the galaxy itself. I love that. And I think it's a great segue to the video work that you titled Interviews with the Milky Way. And in it, I understand you speak with an astrophysicist and your own mother. That's correct. One of the videos, they are side by side. One is with an astrophysicist named Jeff Oishi, who's, who professionally studies the universe. And then one with my own mother, Ellen Yang. And as the whole exhibitions about the Milky Way galaxy, it seemed important to also interview the galaxy itself. Because after all, Jeff and my mother and you and I, even as we speak, we are actually parts of the Milky Way. To some extent, it seems far off and distant in the sky, but inaccessible. But by the same token, there's also this wonderful irony in the fact that we don't need to look out into the sky to see the Milky Way. We are the Milky Way, inherently. And you and I are astronomical phenomena just as much as any star out there that we might see or not see. But I wanted to then have this sort of first-person account of the Milky Way by interviewing these different parts of it, and one being a very self-aware part of the galaxy that actually, as an astrophysicist, studies itself. <laughs> and then my own mother, because she was, after all, the portal through which I came into being in our galaxy. She's the mother, quite literally and metaphorically, of my own origination. And so I talked to both of them about their experiences stargazing. What do you think of when you look at, at the stars? I kind of think of the vastness of the universe. Yeah, I just, I'm kind of awestruck still, particularly on a clear night. 
I'm always a little upset to have an airplane or something come through. It's like they have no business there. One part of the interview, um, I asked her also about her experiences breastfeeding me because the Milky Way as a galaxy is, its namesake is the idea of a mother's milk. Do you get a chance to see the Milky Way? It can look like a scattered, diffuse, milky substance in the sky. That's the reason it's called the Milky Way. And in fact, the word galactic is connected to the lactic, the lactic of milk and the galactic of the galaxy share an etymology for this very reason. So the very word of the galaxy itself comes from this reference to mother's milk. And that's why I also saw a necessity in interviewing my mother, who was the one who nurtured and fed me with her own mother's milk in doing a project about the Milky Way. <laughs> I would have never thought about my role as a mother as a portal or part of the Milky Way. <laughs> it's profound, and I, I felt like it was an important thing to recognize. And it brings on another level of what I'm trying to do in that exhibition, because while the universe and the galaxy seems so cold and abstract and distant, everything that we interact with on an everyday basis, in fact, is the galaxy. And so I wanted to try to find a way to bring that notion of kinship and intimacy also into the project. We are that quote-unquote star stuff that Carl Sagan talks about. All our atoms were forged inside of stars that died billions of years ago. There's a poetic and metaphorical, but also a very literal genealogy to the materiality of our existence in that way that I wanted to try to acknowledge and make sense of in the exhibition. This may be a really cosmic question. <laughs> what <laughs> do you <laughs> they all are. <laughs> what do you see as an artist and scientist and experimenter with this media? What do you see as our future relationship with the stars? That's a wonderful question. Now, as of 2014, 50% of all of humans on the planet, you know, we live in cities. And that's only going to increase in the next few decades. And so that means that fewer and fewer people will actually ever see the stars. Our relationship to the stars, I think, is only diminishing over time, given the way we light cities and the way we treat the landscape. By the same token, astronomical research is accelerating in amazing ways, and we're learning all of these things we never even knew 10 years ago. Ideas that were put forth 20 years ago are being revised in major ways about the origins of the universe, about its very material structure. And so I think if anyone pays attention to that research and that you hear about on the radio and the newspaper, I think that our engagement has increased in a lot of ways. And I think that's really wonderful. The stars are magnificent and beautiful and truly cosmic and sublime, but so is my cat, you know, so is the people I sit with on the subway. And, <laughs> and they're all equally this cosmic material, you know, eventually we will probably be recycled back into other planets or stars, atom by atom, hundreds of millions or billions of years from now. So we'll continue to participate in this ecology of star stuff. That was artist Andrew Yang. He's optimistic he gives us billions of years, Laura. Okay. <laughs> He thinks that we're going to last a little longer as humans on the Earth. Yeah, so what's 3,000 years counting sand if we have that much time? <laughs> Maybe not much. So do you think we're the last of the real humans, Laura? I think it's debatable, but um, our, I guess, in a way, 
I, I still have trouble thinking whether or not we're still human today. Well, <laughs> listeners, what do you think? Are we the last generation? On this show, we're talking about art and our uncertain future, art that speculates on our place in the universe, imagining what happens next for humans based on the history of the cosmos and lived experience and technological advances that are transforming our bodies right. and how we use them. More good things to come. Absolutely. Just enhance us. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Thank you for being with me, Laura. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Super fun show to talk about post-human, that whole notion. <laughs> I'd love for you to let us know how we're doing. Please rate and review our Fresh Art International podcast on iTunes or anywhere you go to listen. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation just awarded Fresh Art International an Arts Challenge Grant. And this means that right now, every donation that you give us, every way that you support us, will go toward helping us reach our goal for matching funds. So I invite you to visit freshartinternational.com and click on the support button to find out more and make your contribution. Again, this is Fresh Art International streaming live on Jolt Radio in Miami, Florida. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.